We have a wonderful crowd this morning. We're very glad to see all of you today. Uh, we hope that the lesson of the morning will be a great blessing to you. As I mentioned last month, we're starting a series on rightly dividing the Word of God. And uh, just to give a brief synopsis of things that we talked about last month, uh, we noted that understanding God's Word takes diligence. It takes a very strong desire to get into the Word and not just read it, but to dig to meditate, to ponder, to search, and uh, to look at the layers that are in God's Word and correlate those layers so that we have a, a full understanding of truth. And one of the things that we noted was that context matters. Looking at things in their context, asking the right questions about who's talking and who's being spoken to, all those things matter. And so throughout our study this morning, I want to put all of those things to practice. And we're going to search and we're going to dig and we're going to, we're going to look at context and we're going to do some, some pondering and some meditation, if you, as you, uh, if you will, I'll get that out in a minute, as we look at the scriptures. And I appreciate the reading of the morning, uh, which we'll note in just a moment. Uh, if we could title this something different, we would call it When the Word Won't Work. And, and that may raise people's antennas because we understand God's Word is effective. And that's, that's very true. But I want to take for just a moment uh, this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where Paul writing to the church says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. And I want to stop and ponder that for just a moment. That Paul said there's something about you that causes us to consistently and constantly thank God. We have not ceased thanking God for you. I'd say that's pretty big. Does that get our attention? You know why Paul was thanking God for the brethren at Thessalonica? He said because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Do you see what he said? We thank God without ceasing because of the way that you received the word that we preached to you. He said you welcomed it. That word means probably exactly what you're thinking. You know, some people will come to our door and knock on the door and we welcome them in. Some people come up and knock on the door and we say, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. You get, you get the difference? They welcomed the message that they were given. But it wasn't just that they welcomed it. That's not why Paul was thankful. Paul was thankful not because they welcomed it, but how they welcomed it. He said, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. What do you think about the Bible? You think it's just some book written by men? Now let me ask you a question. Was the Bible written by men? Yes, yes it was. Men penned the words that we read in Scripture. But that's not all it is. It's not their thoughts. It's not their interpretations. It's not the words of men. It's the word of God that men wrote. And they understood when Paul and others were preaching to them, this is God speaking to us. And he said, when you have that attitude, when you receive God's word that way, notice the effect that it has. It effectively works in you who believe you know God didn't just give us his word so we'd know some things he didn't write his word to us so we'd understand some things God's intention for giving us his word 
is that his word would be understood and applied in such a way that it affects us, that it changes us, that it shapes us, that it molds us, that it transforms us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. But I want you to know something. There are times when even God's people read his word and it doesn't work effectively. And I want to talk to you about why this morning. Why is it that God's word at times doesn't work? And before we get into this, I want to clarify something and say, when the word of God doesn't work, it has nothing to do with the effectiveness of God's word. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we read last month. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now listen, and is profitable. You know what that means? It's effective. It's effective. It's profitable. For what? Reproof, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Notice that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished or equipped unto every work. God's word is effective. It will complete us. So it's, it's not the word's fault. If the word doesn't work in us, it has nothing to do with the word. Notice Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 where it says, The word of God is living and powerful. You ever read a, a book, and I don't mean the Bible, I mean have you ever read a book and you were deeply moved by it? I have. I've read the words of men and been moved emotionally. I've been stirred by it. You, you think that's the same thing as what God's word does? Those are just books. And they're not living. And you might read something that a man wrote and think, that is powerful. But it's no comparison. Notice what he says. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'll tell you what the words of men won't do. They won't pierce you to the deepest parts. You know what he said about a sharper than any two-edged sword? You know why they sharpen a sword on two edges? It's not so they can cut both ways. You sharpen a sword on both edges for penetration, for piercing. That's what those swords are designed to do, to pierce. That's what he says about God's word. It's sharp, it pierces. Well, how deep does it pierce? The deepest part of a man, the soul, the spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes our intentions are so deep, we ourselves can't even discern our own intentions, but God's word can. It is living, it is powerful, and it does what God designed it to do. But notice what he says earlier in this chapter, in verse 2. He says, For unto us the gospel is preached as well as unto them. But notice this, but the word did not profit them. I thought God's word was profitable. It is. But it didn't profit these people he's talking about because he says it's not, it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, God's word works in a good heart. God's word works in a good heart. And if we're going to allow God's word to affect, uh, affect us, our heart has to be right. That's really what the reading that we read this morning was all about. And I want to recall some of that. I've got a couple of times I'm going to ask you to read along with me. Uh, if you want to read this again, you can. I'm just going to really kind of briefly go through some of the things that Jesus said. But I want, the reason I ha had Brother Riley read verse 9 to start is because it was actually the end of the giving of the parable of the sower. And we recognize that parable. We've taught about it a lot. We've talked about it a lot. And, and Jesus ends that parable by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you suppose that there were people there that day in the crowd that didn't have ears? 
Is that what he meant? If you got ears on your head. Well, no, most likely everybody there that day had ears. What did he mean, he who has ears to hear? Well, hold that thought for a minute because we're going to get back to that. After he said that, the disciples, they pulled him aside and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? And, and they were curious because no one taught like Jesus taught. He, he spoke in riddles. He spoke in analogies. And, and these people were going, why do you talk that way? And these are his disciples. And he said, because unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to them it is not given. And if you just stopped right there, you'd probably get the impression that Jesus is saying, look, the reason I talk the way that I do is because I don't want some people to understand what I'm talking about. And that's not what he's saying. And he, he clarifies by going on to say this, for unto those who are given, to those who have rather, more will be given. To those that have not, even what they have will be taken away. Doesn't that clear everything up for us? He said, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. What did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, let's look at it for a moment. He said, whoever has, to him will be given, and he will have more abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. There's a couple things that he says here that I want to really focus on. That's the word has and the word given. Has and given. You see that? What do we start out with? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We know what the have is. This is what the have is. Jesus is saying, whoever has ears to hear, to him more will be given. More what? Look at verse 11. Because it has been given to you to know. He's talking about the relationship between understanding and having ears to hear. It's a very simple concept. If you have ears to hear, you're going to understand what I'm saying. If you don't have ears to hear, even the understanding you think you have will be stripped away from you. And then he goes on to say this. There's a reason why these people's ears aren't functioning properly. And Isaiah prophesied about it. He said their heart has grown hard. Their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes, they've closed. You know, there's some very simple things about eyes and ears. We don't know or understand anything without eyes and ears. I mean, think about that. If you were born into this world and your eyes and ears didn't work, what would you know and understand about the world? What would you know and understand about God? Very little. And it's very important that the eyes and the ears are functioning properly when we are looking at God's Word, when we're trying to understand God's Word. Because if those two things aren't working, then our understanding, it's going to be nowhere. We're going to be the second group that Jesus is talking about. But where does it all start? Right here. That's where Jesus started. Their heart has grown hard. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. He didn't say God closed their eyes. He said they closed their eyes. It was all dependent upon the state of their heart. Notice in verse 19, he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. This is why it's so under, uh, uh, important that we understand God's word. Because if we don't understand what we're reading, if we don't understand what we're hearing, the devil will come and he will take it out of our heart. And guess what happens then? Nothing. It will not affect us if it's not rooted in our heart. And what causes that to happen? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You said, well, you said you'd tell us what that meant. What's that mean? Jesus is saying if you have a desire to understand the truth, that's where it starts. 
If you have a desire to understand, if your heart is right, if you want to know the truth, you'll find the truth. But if you don't, you'll never know the truth. And that's where it all starts, is with a desire to know the truth. Not a desire to validate what I already believe. Not a desire to prove someone else wrong. Not a desire to be intellectually superior, but a desire to know the truth. That's where it starts. And there's some things that hinder that. Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. This is a story of Philip and the eunuch. And as, as, as Philip goes and speaks to this man, I want to think about who this man was for a moment. This eunuch was a very high class person. He was the treasure for a queen. And he lives in Egypt, which at the time was the center of education in the world. This man was not an idiot. He wasn't an idiot. He was a very intelligent person who was reading God's word with a desire to understand, but there was something else that was needed. And so Philip goes up to him and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And I think a lot of us would be insulted by such a question. What do you mean? What do you, you think I'm stupid? Do I understand what I'm, what are you, what are you trying to say here? And, and there wasn't any of that attitude. This man just, he was honest. He was honest. He said, how can I except some man guides me? You know, we've got to have that kind of heart. We've got to have a heart that's willing to listen and to listen to other people's perspectives at time. And if this man had never had that heart, you know what would happen? He'd have rode off, he'd have went back home, and he'd have been lost. But he had a desire for the truth. So what do you say? Come sit with me and teach me the truth. And that's what Philip did. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24, this is a man named Apollos. And, and Apollos, has, we're given a lot of details about his history. And, and this is somewhat unique for New Testament characters because we've got all kinds of characters like Barnabas and Silas and, and, and lists of people in different epistles where we're not given any background information. But Luke took his time to give us some background information about Apollos. And I think that's important to context to understand why he gives that. It's not random information. He says, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Now often when we read this, we focus on this part right here. He was messed up, right? He was messed up. This guy, he was totally wrong about John's baptism and about being baptized into Christ. Okay, that's true. He was messed up. But what about everything else? Where's he born at? Well, who cares, right? No, it matters. He was born at Alexandria, okay? That in their day would be like if I told you that someone went to school at Yale or Harvard or Oxford. You'd go, oh, they're, they're smart. They're educated. Well, that's what the word Alexandria would have uh, done to people in that day because it had the biggest library in the world. This is a very educated person that we're talking about, Apollos. He was no dummy. Not only that, he's, he's an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. He knows the Bible inside and out. He is mighty in the scriptures. And notice he spoke and he taught accurately. We, we don't think about that. He was teaching the scriptures accurately. He knew the Bible, but he was messed up on one thing. And so we've got these other two people that are introduced to us, Priscilla and Aquila, who it says of Apollos, when he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, who is Priscilla and Aquila? 
Well, they were Paul's companions. We know that they traveled with Paul, that they risked their necks for Paul. But you know what they did for a living? They made tents. They made tents. Get the picture here. Here's this guy who went to college, Apollos. And he's gone to seminary. And he's got a doctorate. And he knows the Bible a lot better than you do. And you're just a simple blue-collar worker. And you come up and you dare have the audacity to try to teach this man something. That's the world we live in today, right? That's the world we live in. We've elevated education to such a level where anybody that's not educated certainly can't teach me a single thing. You know what Apollos did that day? He listened with a desire for truth. He learned the truth. And from that moment on, he didn't teach John's baptism. He became a pillar in the church because he had the humility. And I'll tell you what this teaches me. Anybody can learn from anybody. And if we look at people as being beneath us, I'll tell you, that really doesn't matter when it comes to discussing the truth. Because truth is truth, whether it's from an uneducated person or the world's most educated person. Honestly, our desire to know the truth should be so great that if the most wicked person who we didn't respect told us something about God, we'd at least listen. Because it's not about them. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. It's about learning. We should at least consider. That's what this man did. That's the heart that he had. A heart of humility that desired truth over what over ego that he had. One of the biggest hindrances to us understanding God's word is tradition. And, you know, when you think about the word tradition, we, we use that word a lot. So I want to first define the word so we understand what tradition is. Tradition is literally just the transmission of information or practices from one generation to the next. You know, the easiest way for me to explain this is woodworking because I'm a fourth generation carpenter. And there were two ways to do things. It was the the right way and the wrong way. And we all knew what that meant. It was Papa's way or the wrong way. And then later, for me, it was Dad's way or the wrong way. And Dad let the leash off of me and let me do some things my own way as, as I got more experience. But, but you understand, traditions are rooted very deeply. And they're rooted from a very, very young age. They're usually, we learn tradition in the most early, impressionable ages of our lifetime. But here's the dangerous thing about tradition. We practice tradition before we even have the cognitive ability to understand the tradition we're practicing. Think about that. We start to do things that we don't understand because we just don't have the capability. And when you get those things rooted, there are times when you never even question those traditions. You've just always done it, so you always do it. Well, is that a bad thing? Well, it, it doesn't have to be. But it can be a dangerous thing. And you know, one of the things that, that Paul did in his letters, and some of the teachings of Jesus, they warned us about tradition. Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Now notice, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not after Christ. Do you think that he was condemning all tradition here? No. He was condemning tradition that was not according to Christ. He was condemning tradition that was worldly, that was secular, that was carnal. And he said, you have to be careful about that because sometimes men's philosophies can be nothing more than empty words that enslave you intellectually and mentally. He said, you've got to watch out for that. 
you got to make sure that what you believe, what you practice is according to God's will, that it's according to Jesus Christ and not according to the world. Because philosophy is fine when it's in its right place, but sometimes philosophy can cheat us. Sometimes philosophy can enslave us because what we do is we begin to question the Bible. We begin to look at the scripture through the lens of our tradition. Jesus would say this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 39. It says, he spoke a parable to them. This is a very simple parable. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a ditch? Very short parable, right? Very big message. Very big message. Can the blind lead the blind? Well, they can, right? But where do they lead them? Into the ditch. Why do they lead them into the ditch? Because they don't know where the road is. You get the picture? But here's what he says. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not making some connection about him being the teacher and them being the disciples. This is a generic truth about what we would call mentorship. And here's the message he's saying. If somebody has a mentor and they are completely trained by that mentor, you know what they're going to believe? Everything their mentor teaches them. Even if that mentor is blind. That's why traditions are dangerous. Because if we put more stock in the mentor than we do the truth, we might go right off in the ditch. You see Jesus' warning? Look at the next verse. This is all connected. He said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye. What are we talking about? The eyes. Where do we start? The eyes. Now get that. When he's talking about blindness, what's he talking about? The eyes. Then he, ex- he, he gives an, a, uh, an example of blindness here. Notice, he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive, that means see and understand, the beam that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. When you yourself do not see that a beam is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the beam from your own eye. Now notice, then you will see clearly. It's all about the eyes and it's about perception. It's about not being blind and being able to see. So this is probably the most ridiculous analogy that I can think of that Jesus gives in all of his teachings. It's ridiculous. And it was supposed to be ridiculous. Let's think about it. I walk up to you, and you've got a little speck of sawdust in your eye, and I go, oh, man, hold still. Hold really still. Okay. Man, got it. You're so lucky that I got that. And, and you're, you go up to that person, you do that, and they look over, and there's a piece of wood about this long stuck directly in your eye. And they're going, you're concerned about me? You're worried about that little speck? Buddy, you've got a piece of a two-before sticking out of your eye. I don't know if you know that or not. You go, what, are you blind? Yeah, that's Jesus' point. That's his point. You, you can't see clearly to make those discernments. You, you don't understand what's going on. You know why? Because there's something in your eye and you can't see. Where'd this all start? Mentorship. Following men. What do you think he's talking to them about? Tradition. He said, your traditions have blinded you. You're looking out at all these people out here and you think they're beneath you. You think they're wicked. He said, you're looking at them. He said, your eyes of discernment, they're not working. You need to look in the mirror. See what's in your own eyes. See what's going on there because you've been blinded by your traditions. Look at Mark chapter 7 with me for a moment. We're going to read this. Uh, And as we read this, I want to kind of give some narrative to this 
Uh, actually, Mark is going to give us some narrative to this because the first four verses are actually Mark's narrative. They're, they're not recording the conversation. He's going to give us some background details that will help us understand what's going on here and why this is so important. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his, that's Jesus' disciples, eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Now, let's just stop right there and think about what's going on. Uh, I'm a germaphobe. Some of y'all already know this about me. Uh, at times, I can maybe be a touch eccentric. Now, I'm not completely a germaphobe, but I do have this thing about kids washing their hands before they touch food. And so when we cook food and kids come in, I tell them to come in and I say, go wash your hands. But usually it's go wash your filthy hands because... If you got kids, you know their hands don't need to be washed. They need to be sanitized, like with something very strong. Because kids will touch anything. Their hands are nasty. Okay? Some of you are with me, right? Some of you are going, okay, you're a little extreme. But, but understand this. If, I, if they come in, I'm going to ask them, did you wash your hands? Is that okay to ask somebody that? Is it okay to say, hey, it's a good thing for your hygiene to wash your hands? Do we all agree with that? I mean, sure. But let's get where these guys are. My kids come in, and I say, did you, you just touch the bread. Did you wash your hands? And they say, no, sir. And I say, you go to your room right now, and you pray to forgive, for forgiveness. Y'all go, okay, you just went from practical to psychotic. I mean, what? that's where these guys are. It doesn't say that they're like, hey, Jesus, you might want to teach your disciples to wash your hands because, you know, germs, they found fault. They took something that was good and practical, a tradition, and they applied it as a law of righteousness versus unrighteousness. And then they judged everyone accordingly. You see that? And so they asked Jesus, why? Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Jesus does not give them an explanation as to why the disciples didn't, eat with, with their, uh, didn't wash their hands. He never told them why. Here's what he asked them instead. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? It is as written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. Teachings, notice, as doctrines, the commandments of men. Traditions are fine, but when man's traditions are turned into the doctrines of God, they've lost their place, and we're out of place. And that's where these men were. Notice verse 8, he said, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. All too well you reject the commands of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him put, be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his mother or father, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. There's three things that I want to talk about that Jesus said to them that we need to all consider when we think about our traditions. 
Number one, Jesus said, for laying aside the commandments of God that you may hold your tradition. I want to kind of give this in a very simplistic way. When I'm doing a, building a piece of furniture or working on some wood project, I, I never have enough hands. Uh, any of you who have done that know you, can never, you don't have enough hands you can never have enough clamps. I don't care if you've got a thousand, you need more. You need more clamps. You just need a lot of clamps because you need stuff to hold stuff. And sometimes you just got to prioritize. Both hands are full. You need a third thing. You say, okay, we got to make a choice. What's the most important thing to hold? So get this picture. Here are these men, and they have to use both hands, and they've got a choice. Am I going to hold my tradition, or am I going to hold the commands of God? And Jesus says, this is what you do. You take the commandments of God, and you go, okay, I'm going to hold the tradition. That's bad, right? That's bad. He said, in fact, he said, full well, you reject the commandments of God so you can keep your tradition. And he said, in fact, through your tradition, you've made the word of God of none effect. Look, traditions are fine. But when we do this, when we do this, I'll tell you what we've done. We've put God here and we've put man here. That's what we've done. And be very careful our traditions need to be weighed on the scale of truth. They need to be viewed through the lens of truth. Otherwise, those traditions can cheat us, they can rob us, they can enslave us. And we have to be very careful about tradition. But you know, there are traditions that we have that are rooted in God's word. And Paul said here in 2 Thessalonians 2, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught by word or epistle. Why do we have the traditions that we do? Well, it better be because God's word teaches those traditions. And those traditions, we have to hold them. We hold them. See, Jesus said, you hold your tradition. Now Paul says, hold the traditions that are of Christ, that are from God. People will look at it and say, that's, out, that's archaic. That's old. Get rid of those traditions. No. No, if it's from God... It's not just a tradition. It's God's will. Turn with me to the book of James. We're not going to read all the way through verse 25. Uh, we're going to just reference part of that section. But we've talked about the eyes a great deal and how the eyes affect uh, our discernment and our understanding of God's word. I want to think about the ears for just a moment. So let's go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. <clears throat> James 1.18, James says of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, what is he talking about here? You know, there's a, there's a verse here that, where he says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And a lot of times we apply that to, if, if I'm talking to someone, this is the way that I need to communicate with that person. I need to make sure that I listen, that I don't talk. And that's, that's all well and good, okay? There's a lot of principles in the Proverbs that actually teaches that to us. To, to be a good listener, to not be someone who is rebutting everything. But that's not at all what he's talking about. This isn't about me talking to you. This is about me listening to God's word. 
Notice he paints a contrast for us, okay? So he starts out by saying, Of his own will begat he us with what? The word of truth. So then, listen, don't be quick to talk and be slow to wrath. You say, well, how would slow to wrath apply to God's word? You ever heard something from God's word that made you mad? You say, well, I don't know. Have I? I have. I'll tell you, I have people mad at me all the time. <laughs> and all I do is read a scripture with them, and they, they get angry. I'll tell you why, because we got an old saying about truth. Truth hurts. And sometimes when we hear something from God's word, I'll tell you what we do. We close our ears and we open our mouth in anger. And here's what he says. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He says, but here's the other side of it. If you receive with meekness, not anger, but meekness, the implanted word, and you put apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, he said, it will save you. See, the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God, but the meekness of man as he listens to God's word saves his soul. And what does he say right after that? But be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It's all about the ears. Now, what would cause a person to hear God's word and get angry? Pride. That's what James is really talking about here, pride. He goes on to say this. If a man is not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. He looks at his face and he goes his way and he forgets what manner of man he is. You know what that means? He ignores the truth about himself. That's what it means. That's pride. He says you have to be meek. You have to be humble. When you open up God's word, when you hear God's word, he said you've got to look in the mirror and really see who you are in the mirror of God's word. And then do it. Just do it. And he said, this man will be blessed in what he does. We'll talk about that contrast in just a moment. I want to hold that thought for a moment. But I want to first go to a proverb. The proverb says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. I've probably said this here a dozen times, but I'm going to say it again. The hardest person to teach in any room is the smartest person in the room. Think about that. They probably have the greatest capability of learning but they're also the hardest person to teach. Why is that? Because you're not smarter than them. You don't have anything to offer them. They've already got all the answers. Notice what he says. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. What does it mean to heed counsel? It means to consider and listen other people's advice. So let's think about this for just a moment, this idea of the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So who is that? Every one of us, every one of us is right most of the time, right? We all feel that way. And it's, it's not, he's not saying if you believe what you believe is right, then you're a fool. That's not the point. The point is when you believe that you're right to the point where you won't listen to anyone else, then you're a fool. So there's got to be some moderation. There's got to be some balance. Yes, we all believe that we're right, but we also have to have a listening ear. You know, Jesus encountered people like this all the time. In fact, he fed thousands of people on one day and one occasion with a lad's lunch. I mean, imagine that you're there and you see that miracle happen. Would you ever leave Jesus' side after that? I mean, you'd know, right? You'd know who he was. That type of power. Well, let's think about that for a moment. Jesus feeds the thousands and Jesus says to the apostles, we need to get away from the crowd. Let's go over to this place. We're going to rest a while. You guys don't even have time for leisure. Uh, you don't even have time to eat. 
Let's go away for a while. So they go away, and they get there, and guess who's there? The multitude, who he just fed. And Jesus looks at the multitude, and he says, the only reason you're here is because I gave you food and your bellies were full. He said, but I have food for you. I've got food for you that if you eat it, you'll never die. See, your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they're dead. But I have food that if you eat it, you'll never die. And they said, oh, okay, well, give us that food. That's the food that we want. And he said, okay, here it is. It's me. I am the food that you need to eat so you'll never die. And they went, wait, what? <laughs> Seriously? He said, in fact, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You think that was hard to hear? It most certainly was. They said, how can this man give us his, his body to eat? You know, it was against the law of Moses to eat people. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's against God's law today. But it was also against their law to drink blood. Not just human blood, but any blood. And Jesus says, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. That's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. And that's what they said. This is hard to hear. Who can listen to it? That was their problem. Yeah, it was hard to hear. But why not listen? He just fed you with nothing. You've heard his teachings. You've seen his works, his miracles. Why are you worried about what was so hard to hear? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? His disciples were grumbling about this. Do you think that his disciples, and let's just think about the 12. Do you think his 12 apostles heard Jesus teaching about eat my body and drink my blood, and they went, yeah, we get that. He's just making an analogy. We understand that. No. They didn't even know he was going to die on the cross. They didn't understand what he was talking about either. It was just as hard for them to hear as it was for the other people. But you know what made them different? You know what separated them? Jesus looked at them and he said, are you also going to go away? And you know what Peter said? Peter said, no, Lord, we understood everything that you say. We have a firm grasp of what you were saying and we're fine with it. No, that's not what he said. Peter said, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? I'll tell you where they were. Jesus, we have no clue what you're saying, and it was hard to hear, but we know who you are. And just because you tell me something hard to hear doesn't mean I'm going to leave because I know who you are. You're the Son of God. You are the Christ. You have the words of eternal life. And even if those words are hard to hear, even if they hurt, I'm with you because of who you are, not because of what you said. Some things Jesus said are hard to hear. You're going to leave Jesus because it hurt your feelings? Because I'll tell you, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, there were two groups that we see that really embody this concept. Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? There were 3,000 people that day that received with meekness the implanted word and it saved their souls. But you know, we have another group in this same book that Luke wrote. And the Bible, the Bible says that the word cut them to the heart. Same message, cut them to the heart. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. We got meekness, we've got wrath. And I'll tell you, this group went home saved that day and this group went home murderers. They went home murderers. I want to leave you with one last passage today. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. You ever own something that you bought and maybe you bought it for a small price. 
but it became invaluable to you, so much so that you would not sell it. I've got a guitar at home that I paid $500 for. If you wrote me a check for $20,000 today, I wouldn't give it to you. Some of you probably think you're insane. Maybe I am. But I'll tell you why I won't sell it to you, because it's more important to me than money. It's more important to me than anything you could give me. Now, if the price got higher, my wife may be trying to persuade me to sell that guitar. But you get the picture. You get the point, don't you? There's certain things that are just too valuable to sell for anything. And truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding, they're far too valuable to trade for tradition. To sell for, for what? Pride? Imagine you get to keep your pride but lose the truth. Is that a good trade? That's a terrible transaction. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Not even for family. Family's important, right? I'll tell you, that's one thing you couldn't put a price on. I don't care if you offer me $10 billion. You can't have one of my kids. Not a one. But if it comes between God's truth and my kids, I'm going with the truth. If it comes between God's word and my parents, I'm going with the truth. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard. But truth is what sets us free. Truth is where life is. Truth is where God is and where God will always be. And he will not compromise for anything and until we really have that in our mind, that truth is the most valuable thing that I could possibly have, our eyes and our ears will never function properly and will never have the full effect of God's word in our life. Friends, today maybe you've heard the gospel message and maybe you've walked away mad. Maybe you've been angry. Maybe you have thought about tradition. Maybe you've thought about family. Whatever it is, I want you to know that that is more valuable than any of that other stuff. The truth is more valuable and if you need salvation, it's in Jesus Christ and in him alone. But you may have to give up some things to come to him. That's just the reality. Maybe you're here today and you've rejected the truth as one of God's, as one of God's children. Well, God is a loving God, a long-suffering God. He is patient and he loves mercy. And he wants you to come home to him. Even if you've rejected his truth, God wants you to come home to him. That's where he wants you. So come home as we stand and we sing.